0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of the week where we talk about science and skepticism. As always, you can find me throughout the week at my Facebook page, which is Evidence-Based Radio, and you can find this and previous episodes of the show as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher, uh, such as iTunes or uh, Stitcher or um, anywhere else. Spotify. That's what I was looking for. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, let's start tonight with the story that I didn't get to last week because I think it's really interesting and I definitely want to talk about it. So I have reported in the past how bees are really smart. Uh, Even though they have tiny, tiny little brains, they can do a whole heck of a lot with them. And so uh, in the past, I've reported that bees are able to learn to use simple machines such as tugging on a rope to move a plate containing nectar from under a plastic cover so that they can get at the nectar. Well, we can now add to this the fact that they are apparently able to understand the concept of zero. And so zero may seem like a pretty simple concept to modern humans, but it's actually a quite complex idea that was actually out of the grasp of even some ancient human numeric systems. And so the invention of zero by humans is actually considered a pretty big deal. Now, RMIT researcher Adrian Dyer and colleagues have found that bees are actually able to make this cognitive leap. The number zero was the backbone of modern maths and technological advancements, Dr. Dyer notes. Zero is a difficult concept to understand and a mathematical skill that doesn't come easily. It actually takes children a few years to learn, We've long believed only humans had the intelligence to get the concept, but recent research has shown monkeys and birds have the brains for it as well. What we haven't known until now is whether insects can also understand zero. And so the way they were able to test this was by placing the bees in a specially designed uh, test apparatus. And so they were then trained to choose images with the lowest number of elements. Uh, They were rewarded with a sugar solution when they chose correctly. And so when the researchers added images that contained zero elements, the bees were actually able to determine that this represented a lower number than an image with any number of actual elements. This was despite the fact that they had not been exposed to null sets during the training phase. The finding opened the door to new understandings of how different brains could represent zero, Dr. Dyer said. This is a tricky neuroscience problem. It is relatively easy for neurons to respond to stimuli, such as light or the presence of an object. But how do we, or even an insect, understand what nothing is. How does a brain represent nothing? Could bees and other animals that collect lots of food items have evolved special neural mechanisms to enable the perception of zero? So if bees can learn such a seemingly advanced math, ma- math skill that we don't even find in some ancient human cultures, uh, perhaps this opens the door to consider the mechanisms that allow animals and ourselves to understand the concept of nothing. Now, of course, because the bee's brain is so small, uh, it's really interesting. It is definitely going to uh, open the door for researchers to look at other animals and see if it is a much more uh, common concept for them to be able to understand than we once thought. And uh, we'll come back to the whole idea of uh, what animals can and cannot do in a moment. Uh, I have a couple more stories about that. But I did uh, want to now talk about a little bit of sad news. Um, And so you've almost certainly heard, but in case you haven't, uh, Coco the Gorilla died peacefully in her sleep on Tuesday at the age of 46. Uh, Coco was famous for having learned sign language and having an affinity for cats. Uh, Coco's first cat, which she named All Ball, apparently uh, she enjoyed rhyming uh, when she spoke, and uh, All Ball was apparently a Manx cat, so uh, it didn't have a it didn't have a tail so it looked a little bit like a uh ball when it was a kitten uh at some point unfortunately uh all ball was hit by a car and killed and uh the world basically mourned alongside coco uh when they saw her obvious greek Grief over the cat's death. And so they were really able to see that Coco was very similar to humans. Um, again, in this same vein, uh, she actually would go on to raise a series of kittens into cats. Uh, and so um, that was one of her favorite things. Uh, so she was a Western lowland gorilla She was born at the San Francisco Zoo in 1971 and was taught sign language by Dr. Penny Patterson and Dr. Ronald Cohn. Uh, She was moved to Stanford in 1974 when the Gorilla Foundation was established to take care of her and to advocate for other gorillas. Uh, It later moved to its current location in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Her impact has been profound, and what she has taught us about the emotional capacity of gorillas and their cognitive abilities will continue to shape the world, the Foundation noted in a statement. Now, there have been some sort of weird reports over the years about things happening at the Foundation, but uh, Coco was undeniably a symbol of our connection to the animal world and for our need to preserve gorilla habitats. Uh, and gorillas in general, in order to allow future generations to be able to have this same sort of connection with them. And so she will be sincerely missed. Um, and yeah, uh, this actually dovetails very nicely into my next story though, uh, which is about animal communication. And of course that is a fairly regular topic here on the show And again, it seems pretty fitting to follow up uh, talking about COCO with this study. So a new study in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B uh, looked at over 50 years of studies on animal exchanges across the domains of life in order to shed light on the workings of human language. So the researchers pouring through this data, uh, identified four key elements that characterize uh, human social action as well as animal social action when in conversation. So it is flexibility in turn-taking organization, uh, identifying who takes the next turn, when responses occur, and what the next turn does. So not only do the researchers suggest a way to unify the study of animal conversations, they also suggest that it might lead to a greater understanding of how human speech evolved and how close or distinct it really is from that of birds or beetles, for instance. Language, humans' most distinctive trait, still remains a mystery for evolutionary theory, the study explains it is underpinned by a universal infrastructure cooperative turn-taking which has been suggested as an ancient mechanism bridging the existing gap between the articulate human species and their inarticulate primate cousins however they note we know remarkably little about turn-taking systems in of non-human animals and so researchers from the universities of york and sheffield in england along with the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany and the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in the Netherlands, uh, have determined this framework for comparing conversations between diverse living things. We came together because we all believe strongly that these fields can benefit from each other. And we hope that this paper drives more crosstalk between human and animal turn taking research in the future, says Sonia Vernes from the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in a study about the state, in a statement about the study, uh, which is entitled, You Talking to Me? Uh, And so when observing animals such as birds or insects, researchers can observe cooperation with turn-taking when signaling information and times between cries. Uh, Timing, tenor, and context of exchanges are all important in what is being signaled, but it remains difficult to determine What that information is, especially when researchers are in distinctive fields such as zoology and linguistics and may not have chances to collaborate. So, we definitely know that animals are actually talking to one another in some sense, talking in uh, quotation marks, but we still don't know if it's uh, more complex information that's being traded or if it's very simple things that are being traded, we just don't know. Although temporal coordination in animal communication has attracted interest over several decades, no clear picture has yet emerged as to why individuals exchange signals, the researchers note. And so basically what they uh, are saying is that more collaborative work is necessary to see if and how animal communication is tied to human speech. And speaking of communication uh, in animals, a new study on swamp sparrows in the U.S. suggests that they may have a sort of cultural song making tradition. And so uh, this study looked at recordings or listened to recordings of 615 male swamp sparrows repertoires for a year uh, in the Northeast. Robert Lachlan of Queen Mary University in London, found that the birds typically learn a dozen syllable types as young birds, but ultimately choose around three as they reach adulthood. The birds are able to learn these songs with high accuracy. They also found that there is a marked conformist bias in which syllables are adopted by the males. And uh, so they tend to keep the ones that are the most popular. The paper published in Nature Communications showed that when modeled, it was possible to suggest that some syllables may have been preserved over centuries or even longer. We're able to demonstrate that they learn quite precisely and they have a conformist bias they have stable cultural traditions with song types that can last many hundreds of years he suggests of course it's hard to experimentally prove this because bird song isn't something that can be preserved historically at least before the advent of recording devices the time frames are so big here That you can't get fossils or archaeological evidence. It's difficult to think of direct ways to test this, Lachlan admits. Uh, But there is evidence from other birds, such as yellowhammers in New Zealand, which suggest that songs may be retained among populations over long periods of time. The birds were actually imported from England in the 19th century. Some songs sung by populations in New Zealand have been lost to those remaining in Britain, but it's believed that those songs come from ancestral populations in Britain. So again, it may be that birdsong is more closely analogous to human speech than we think. And so moving on, uh, not to be outdone by the animal kingdom, uh, is the kingdom of plants. And so there is a debate that has uh, sort of gathered steam over the last several years about whether or not plants can actually be considered to have consciousness. And so a recent article in Quartz uh, included opinions on both sides of the question, Uh, Plant biotechnologist Devin Mehta of the University of Alberta suggests that the answer to the question is an unreserved no. Uh, He lays out his objectives rather succinctly. For one, definitions of consciousness and intelligence are hotly contested, even when talking about humans and animals. Second, plants lack a nervous system, which has long seemed requisite for discussion of animal-like behavior. Third. While the way in which many anesthetics function in humans is still a mystery, there is no reason why they or other chemicals shouldn't induce a response in any organism, let alone plants. Uh, now that third point is referring to, uh, studies that have been done that basically show that if you give, uh, plants chloroform or other kinds of anesthetic, that they basically, uh, their systems are slowed and they act uh, like they have actually been "quote unquote" drugged, the way that a human system would react, and so it is one of those sort of odd things that would maybe lead you to think that there might be something that is directly comparable. But he his argument is that uh, you know it's just a chemical process, and that doesn't actually mean anything beyond it's a chemical process. Uh, And so he suggests that plants should be respected for their complex biology, but cannot be considered conscious. Now, proponents of plants having something like consciousness point to studies such as one conducted in 2014, where potted plants of the uh, species Mimosa pudicus were dropped a short distance. When first dropped, the plants curled up their leaves defensively, but they soon adapted, learned, and stopped the productive action as they were dropped multiple times without injury. We also know that plants communicate with themselves, fungi, and animals using complex chemical signals via their roots, branches, and leaves. We also know that they send out information via seeds and even some sustain weaker members of their own species by sharing nutrients, which can be argued to be a kind of kinship. They also have defense mechanisms, nutrient sensing and seeking behaviors, and as mentioned above, memories. I always recommend when I talk about plants and, uh, The Idea of Consciousness, this amazing uh, episode of the documentary Nature, uh, it's called What Plants Talk About, and it's pretty mind-blowing. There is some amazing things in that documentary about the ways that plants can communicate, uh, especially uh, wild tobacco plants just what they do is absolutely mind blowing. The first time I watched it, I was just like, this, just can't possibly be real. Um, it, it just, it will really make you pause and, uh, consider getting on the side of people who think that plants might have some sort of, uh, thing that could be considered, uh, on the scale towards consciousness, because man uh I definitely recommend it um and it's nature documentary, so I think it should be available pretty easily to find um uh on p b s website. I will try and find a link to it if I can, and put it on the Facebook page uh after the show now. On this hand uh, of people who do argue that plants might actually have something considered to be consciousness is philosopher Michael Martin, who is author of the book, Plant Thinking, A Philosophy of Vegetal Life. And he told Gizmodo that plants are definitely conscious, though in a different way than we humans are. He states it fairly simply that If consciousness literally means being with knowledge, then plants fit the bill perfectly. He argues that our anthropomorphic understanding of consciousness actually makes it hard for us to see or understand plant consciousness. Evolutionary ecologist Monica Galliano is very clear about her opinion on plants as well. My work is not about metaphors at all, uh, she told Forbes. When I talk about learning, I mean learning. When I talk about memory, I mean memory. Galliano says working with plants gave her an epiphany. The main realization for me wasn't the fact that plants themselves must be something more than we give them credit for, but what if everything around us is much more than we give it credit for, whether it's animals, plants, bacteria, whatever. Gagliano is aware that this might be again considered anthropomorphizing to others, but to her it's all about the opposite, opening up the possibility that organisms experience the world in different ways that we struggle to be able to both identify and explain. To me, the role of science is to explore, and to explore especially what we don't know. But the reality is that much research in academia tends to explore what we already know because it's safe, she argues. Again, I think that the more and more that we learn about the world, the more and more we realize just how fascinating and amazing it is in ways that we could have never once imagined. Um, and I think that there is definitely something to be said about the idea that, uh, anthropomorphizing goes both ways. So yes, it can be seen as a way in which people look into things and see what isn't there, but it can also very much be used as a way to not see that things are there because we're looking for a specific human based version of whatever, um, personality trait or uh, cognitive ability or thought process or whatever it is that comes from a human perspective. I've been talking to people who work with amoebas and slime molds, and it's the same all over, Gagliano states. These guys, the critters are amazing. They do stuff that we don't even dream of. And by not dreaming of it, we assume it doesn't exist. So yeah, <laughs> that is definitely uh something that I also agree with. I think that the more that we learn about uh especially things like plants and uh amoebas and slime molds and I mean slime molds are fascinating. I know it sounds terrible, you know, slime molds, but really um there's a reason that people study slime molds, and there are people that are devoted to slime molds because they're amazing. <laughs> they really are. Um, but, anyways, that is a story for another day. Because uh, now I want to shift gears and move uh, from the realm of the Earth uh, up into the realm of space and into uh, physics. And so uh, this is definitely one of those sort of hard to fathom things. I find uh, that, you know, it's hard for people to sort of think about these really big things in physics and uh, astronomy because it's just so far out there. Uh, Things that are either infinitesimally small or infinitesimally large. Um, But actually, I think we're going to take a break first before we make this shift Uh, It's about that time, so hang on for a few minutes while we do some PSAs, and then we will come back and talk about physics and astronomy. Okay, hang on for just a sec.
1: Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires, and I save lives.
0: My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives.
1: My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life firefighters doctors and others save lives you can too don't wait to learn more about the warning
0: signs and how you can help prevent suicide visit save.org in a crisis call the national suicide prevention lifeline at
1: 1-800-273-TALK has anyone ever asked you don't you have enough records adventure rocket ship is new and old indie pop psych pop Post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge-drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies To prevent binge drinking, healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a
0: bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you you like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow?
1: Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt... I'm so glad we left that stupid party.
0: No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Cause you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. What about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing- Megan, oh, look out, look out! <gasps> oh,
1: oh. oh my God, Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm, I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent, in the wrong direction. I can't believe this, I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No genius. I'm not serious. Ow! My arm, it hurts. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzzed driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. You don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing for yourself and your community. Pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org drum and bass with dj fife is on eight o'clock on saturday night we roll from eight o'clock to ten o'clock on valley free radio wxojlp or online at valleyfreeradio.org join the eight o'clock drum and bass association by listening to drum and bass with dj fife eight to ten saturday nights
0: great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play but kids aren't the only ones outdoors Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov lime And we are back. Okay, so like I said, we are going to be switching over to talking about space and about physics. And so we're going to start in sort of pure physics, move into space for a second, and then come back to sort of more pure physics. (laughs) Uh, And so researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder... Uh, and colleagues have announced that they believe they have found the last of the ordinary matter that has been theorized, but up until now undiscovered in the universe, and which basically makes the uh, model of the Big Bang work. (laughs) Uh, And so this ordinary matter, which is called baryons, uh, basically makes up everything we can see and measure in the universe. And until recently, researchers had only been able to account for about two-thirds of that amount. Uh, And so again, it is two-thirds of the amount that we should be able to detect based on models of the Big Bang. And so an international group of researchers have found uh, what they think is that missing matter. And so what they have found is that there is matter hiding in the space between galaxies. And so it is in filaments of oxygen gas, which hover at around 1 million degrees Celsius, notes Michael Scholl of the Department of Astrophysics, Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences, which is the APS. The new study published in Nature was led by Fabrizio Nicastro, Of the Italian Instituto Nazionale di Astrofisica, INAF, and uh, the Observatorio Astronomica di Roma, and the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. (laughs) Uh, Some of these international teams, it's a mouthful. (laughs) This is one of the key pillars of testing the Big Bang Theory. Finding out the baryon census of hydrogen and helium and everything else in the periodic table, said Schull. Now, actually, back in 2012, Schull and colleague Charles Danforth, a research associate at APS, proposed that the missing matter was most likely located in a web-like pattern throughout space called the Warm-Hot Intergalactic Medium, or WIM. And so in order to prove the theory, the team pointed a series of satellites at a quasar called 1ES-1553A. Um, and it's basically a black hole at the center of the galaxy that is consuming and ejecting huge quantities of gas. It's basically a really big lighthouse out in space, shall notes. And so using the bright signal from the quasar, the team was able to look at the material between the bright object and the Earth. They first used the Hubble Space Telescope's Cosmic Origins spectrograph to narrow down the scope of where the missing baryons might be. They then used the European Space Agency's X-ray Multi-Mirror Mission, uh, also known as XMM-Newton satellite, and they used that Using that satellite, they found signatures for a type of highly ionized oxygen gas that exists in a large enough density that, when extrapolated to the entirety of the known universe, can account for the missing 30% of matter. While the researchers will need to confirm the readings, seven other sources have already been selected for research, and they are pretty confident that they've found the missing matter. They suspect that it has been blown out into intergalactic space over billions of years by galaxies and quasars. But of course, with everything, there is uh, some doubt, especially with all of these sorts of theoretical ideas about physics. And so uh, since much of this research is preliminary, others aren't quite so sure that they've really found it. For instance, the researchers only used the one quasar and found one set of samples. This is one detection, and so deriving a cosmic mean density of hot gas is a bold thing to do, and not necessarily in a good way, says Jason Tumlinson, astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute. Usually you would need a larger sample to be confident in the derived mass budget. Astronomers also note that the journal Science has a tendency to oversell astronomy results. And so, uh, you know, it's definitely the kind of thing where um, we're not quite sure what's going on, but we think that we have the answer, but, you know science is all about having multiple samples and so right now there is just this one uh this this sample size of one and of course in many other sciences that wouldn't even be anything we would look at we would say you have to have many more samples than just this one uh but of course because we're dealing in uh, space science, where it's hard to get that sort of information. uh, It is much easier for people to kind of try and say, well, you know, (laughs) we have this information now. And we think that this is a pretty good part. This is a pretty good explanation for what's going on. Particle physics is very hard and trying to figure out where all of this stuff is, uh, it's just very um, theoretical. And so I think that it's important to talk about sort of both sides uh, because I think that again, it's important to show sort of the nuts and bolts of pure science. And so even though, yeah, it sounds perfectly reasonable that we found this information and this is totally true. There are some other people who are saying, well, yes, but there's just this one. Um, And we're actually going to do a second story about that in just a minute. But I did want to take a second to talk about that massive dust storm on Mars. Uh, And so basically it has turned into a global weather event. Uh, It has knocked NASA's Opportunity Rover offline, Uh, but of course, Curiosity is actually nuclear powered and so it is still able to uh, send back pictures and it has been sending back some doozies. (laughs) And so, yeah. Uh, luckily, at least Curiosity is still able to uh, respond. And of course, NASA has assured people that Opportunity will come back online. It's just at the moment not able to do anything because it is based on a uh, solar array. And so the last time this happened was in 2007 uh, before Curiosity even got to Mars. And so. Hopefully, uh, it will be able to get back on track once the sandstorm has finished up. And so NASA officials wrote in an update on Wednesday, a recent analysis of the rover's long-term survivability in Mars's extreme cold suggests opportunities, electronics, and batteries can stay warm enough to function. Regardless, the project doesn't expect to hear back from Opportunity until the skies begin to clear over the rover. That doesn't stop them from listening for the rover every day. So hopefully we will be able to get them, get it back on track pretty soon. All right, and so now let's go back to physics and talk about another paper. This one is uh, by Thomas Collette of the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation at the University of Portsmouth, England, and another international team of astronomers. Uh, and this is again published in the journal Science. And so what they were looking for was gravitational forces. Uh, we're looking to find evidence of gravitational forces from the opposite direction from which from what is usually taken. So usually what happens is that the researchers look for gravitational lensing and then determine what the galaxy is, uh, what the mass of the galaxy is from that gravitational lensing. So this time, what the researchers did was they first calculated the mass of a galaxy, uh, ESO325-G004, by measuring the movement of the stars. They then calculated the curvature of the Einstein ring surrounding the galaxy uh, to determine how much it deformed the space around it. Now, the measure for a mass's curving effect is called gamma. And relativity theory states that the gamma of a system should be one. And so when the scientists did their calculations, they found that they calculated gamma for the system was 0.97, with a plus or minus error of 0.09 to account for uncertainty. This means, basically, that the experimental data equates well with the theory. This proved that the way mass warps spacetime is exactly correct, Colette told Gizmodo. That's the fundamental property of general relativity, how spacetime behaves. Part of the reason that we need to actually keep testing the theory is that while the theory continues to hold up, there's still a large amount of unaccounted-for energy that is causing the universe to accelerate as it expands. One of the proposed explanations for this is that dark energy, uh, might actually have an effect on this gravitational lensing. And so some theorists have proposed that the gamma might actually be larger than one for bigger systems. However, this new result suggests that theories that tweak gamma too much probably don't represent reality. Now, of course, as I mentioned above, uh, or a few minutes ago, I should say, um, that, um, this is just one measurement. And so there is definitely an amount of uncertainty inherent in such measurements. And of course, uh, despite his very uh, sort of forceful uh, statement above, uh, Colette does understand that this is just one measurement. And so definitely they do want to do this again. Um, but it's another important step in working on figuring out what really is going on out there and how the universe really works. So it is pretty interesting and exciting. And I like that they decided to turn it on its head and do the calculations from the opposite direction to see if they would get the same kind of results. Okay, so let's move back into biology for a moment, and talk about dinosaurs. And so this has kind of been all over the place. I didn't think it was that amazingly interesting. But I think it's mostly because, you know, another Jurassic Park movie is coming out and uh, everything is happening in that in the world of dinosaurs and people are really interested. Um, But it turns out that again, Jurassic Park has Surprise, surprise, got it wrong about the anatomy of these ancient beasts. And so it turns out that, for instance, uh, large carnivores like T-Rex probably couldn't move their tongues. A new paper published in PLOS One suggests that these dinosaurs would have had tongues more similar to alligators, which are firmly attached to the roof of the mouth. They were able to determine this by studying a wide range of fossils including bird-like dinosaurs, plant-eaters, and again, T. rex. Uh, they compared the hyoid bone, which is located at the top of the throat, and anchors and supports the tongue between the fossils and that of 13 modern birds and three alligator species. Julia Clark, professor of vertebrate paleontology at the University of Texas, Austin, and co-authors of the study, has Have previously suggested that the vocalizations of dinosaurs would also have more closely resembled the low booming and cooing noises of alligators rather than the mighty roars so prevalent in movies. Now, interestingly, pterosaurs and bird like dinosaurs had hyoids that showed a greater amount of diversity, more similar to that of modern birds. Now, pterosaurs don't have any actual descendants, they actually completely died out uh, with the dinosaurs. But the fact that their tongues resemble those of modern birds suggests an interesting hypothesis. It suggests that the variety of tongue designs, including those that are spiky, forked, or tube-like, and which may have hyoids that wrap around the back of the skull or extend to the tip of the tongue, may have evolved due to the specific evolutionary pressures of flight. Because birds and flying dinosaurs no longer had hands to help them manipulate food, tongues may have developed a wider range of morphologies to take up that need for food manipulation. But of course, as with everything tonight, uh, there are exceptions and things that sort of make that not the easiest explanation. Uh, Plant eaters like triceratops and the um, ankylosaurs or ankylosaurs also had complex hyoid bones. And so, (laughs) um, but I think it does make a certain amount of sense for those, uh, animals that were flying that when you don't have the ability to use, um, hands or even feet, uh, it's easier to develop a tongue that can do some of that work for you. Uh, but regardless, studies such as this help us to learn more about dinosaurs and their evolution into modern birds. Okay, so moving forward in time quite a bit, but not so close to modern times, uh, I want to talk about another story about Oatsy, uh the Iceman who was found in the Alps uh, back in 1991. Uh, he continues to tell us more about who he was and how he lived. And so in the days leading up to his murder, uh, he was sharpening at least some of his tools. Now, this doesn't mean he was anticipating a fight. He was sharpening his tools rather than his weapons uh, and was most probably using his right hand, according to a new analysis of cut marks on his belongings. Study co researcher Ursula Weirer, an archaeologist at uh, Soprintenza Archaeology, which is an office within the Italian ministry, told Live Science that she wasn't able to tell if he was preparing for a fight, but I think he resharpened them because maybe he had some work in mind to do with these modified tools. And again, he hadn't resharpened his dagger or other weapons, so it really doesn't suggest that he was anticipating a fight. Now, if you don't remember, Otsi was around 45 years old when he was killed by the combination of a head injury and an artery-piercing arrow to his shoulder sometime between 3370 and 3100 BCE, which was during the Copper Age. And despite having been available for study for many years, parts of Otsi's toolkit had not yet been properly studied. Beyond the dagger, he had an end scraper, likely used for cutting plants or working animal hides, a borer for making holes in materials such as wood, a flake, an antler retoucher, and two arrowheads, along with the arrowhead that was, well, still embedded in his shoulder. Uh, The researchers had just a few days to examine each tool with microscopy and uh, CAT scans. And so once the scanning was done, the researchers had to sift through the large amount of data that was produced. So they found that his tools were made of chert from at least three different locations. Outcrops in Trentino, Italy, around 25 miles away rocky areas of southwestern Trentino around 47 miles away, and possibly the Trento Plateau at least 43 miles away. Now, because Otsi most likely lived in the Vinchgau Valley (laughs) in modern uh, southern Tyrol, it's possible that Otsi or someone else in his village traded with people from different regions. Maybe he did not trade himself. But he had some kind of contact with people who traded, uh, Weirer said. Now, another sign that Oetzi had contact with people beyond his local village was that his tools actually show features from two cultures. The arrowheads are typical of those found in northern Italy, while the end scraper resembles those found in the Swiss and southern German lake dwellings of the Horgan culture. Now, we know that there was trade of chert daggers between Northern Italy and Southern Germany and Switzerland during the Copper Age from other archaeological finds, so it makes sense that he might have been a part of that trade. Now, it had previously been determined that the copper from Oetzi's axe was sourced in present-day Tuscany in central Italy. I think we have to imagine that the trade at the time was already quite far-reaching for certain raw materials and certain products, Wirer said. Now, the sharpening of the tools showed as an opaque patina without signs of wear. But again, uh, they most likely were created sometime before he... uh, sometime in sort of the weeks leading up to uh his death because it turns out that it probably wasn't in the last few days before his death because he actually had a cut on his right hand. And so uh, because they suspect he was right handed, uh, not only because of the cut marks on his uh, clothing, but also because his right side was slightly more developed than his left, he probably wouldn't have been doing anything in that last couple of days because uh, it's kind of hard to try to do flint napping when you have a uh, existing cut on your hand because it's just going to get worse, and you're just going to have a bad time. Um, flint napping is extremely hard to do, even when you are a uh, expert at it. I have seen experts do uh, flint napping and actually hurt themselves quite badly. Um, and so, chert is actually really sharp. Um, it is. Uh, basically it's almost like obsidian, uh, and actually, obviously you can make tools from obsidian as well, but, uh, it is very sharp and very hard to handle. And even if you think it's going to go one way, it can go another way. Uh, and you end up with a sharp piece of, uh, stone embedded in your hand. (laughs) Uh, and so he probably definitely would not have wanted to be doing that, while he was in the middle of a uh, journey away from the village, probably away from, um, you know, a healer, even though I believe he did have some um, herbs and things in his pack. So he probably had kind of a uh, (laughs) copper age uh, first aid kit, if I remember right. I mean, if remembering all of the things that he had with him. It's just really amazing to think that, you know, basically he was a modern person with all of the sort of modern things that we think about today, 3000 BC, uh, BCE. And so, you know, that's actually about 5,000 years ago. So 5,000 or more years ago, This person was out in the Alps. He was wearing uh, clothing that, you know, other than being more primitive in the sense that, uh, you know, it was made of furs and things like that would be perfectly reasonable to be considered something that you could recreate in, you know, more modern cloth and have it be reasonable to be what you would think of as humans wearing every day. Um, He had a toolkit, he had bow and arrows, he had a dagger, he had other things with him. He had, uh, the ability to, um, he had figured out, uh, not him specifically, but his people had figured out how to do insulation in order to keep themselves warm. Um, so he had stuffed, um, grasses into his boots and things like that to keep his feet warm. And it's just amazing that, you know, 5,000 years ago already, these people were completely uh, modern. And I just always like to remind people of that. Uh, I know that's a sort of a broken record theme here, but I think it's really important for people to remember that. And I think that he's a great representative of those people, and we will continue to learn more about them uh, as we've f- continue to study the remains that were found with him. But for tonight, that is all the time that I have. Please do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information,
1: please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.